Well, we have covered how to recognize deceptive teaching and false teachers. We looked at that in 1 John 4. We've covered how to share our faith with someone who's been sucked into deception. We looked at the book of Jude. Covered where most modern-day cults come from when we looked at the restoration movement. And so almost all of the major cults we interact with in our city, they started in the United States. Again, that's very suspect. They all started here, and they all started during or just after the restoration movement came onto the scene. That should get our antenna going, going something's up here, because the cult founders of, of all these cults, they didn't actually know the Bible. They fell for the lies of the restoration movement, and they took them a step farther. So in our remaining studies on the cults, we've been, we're going to educate ourselves on the cults that we are likely to come into contact with in our community here in Central Florida. We're going to examine the claims that some of these cults that started during that time period make, and then we're going to test them against Scripture like 1 John chapter 4 commands. Last week we looked at Mormonism. This morning we're going to look at uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I need to give this important reminder again. If you haven't been to the whole series, I want to remind you that what we're doing right now, our examination of these individual cults is not so you can know how to share your faith with them. The book of Jude teaches us how to share the gospel with someone who's involved in false teaching. And so I strongly encourage you to go listen to that study that I did a few weeks ago on the book of Jude if you would like to learn how to share the gospel with someone who's a cult member. What we're doing tonight is not so you can do a better job sharing the gospel with them. We've already covered that. Because if you and I take what we learn tonight about uh, the Kingdom Hall, about the Watchtower Society, um, and then we use that as a weapon to seek to win a conversation with someone who's in a cult, we're going to miss the point and we're going to fail to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not what this is for. Our goal in educating ourselves on the Watchtower Society tonight is spiritual preventive maintenance. It's so you'll never get sucked into it. It's so you'll never, you know, hear these things, and when you get a little confused by what they're saying, you'll, you'll be inoculated already. You'll go, I know this ain't right. I don't know how to answer that question, but I know that's not right, so I'm just going to go dig back into my Bible, okay? Now, uh, for some additional resources, there's no way I can get into all of this tonight. In fact, I may not even get into all my notes tonight. This is the most notes I've ever had for a sermon. So uh, if, we may not get anywhere near through all the material I have. If you want to do a more exhaustive study, the Kingdom of the Cults is a great resource to have in your library no matter what. But his section on Jehovah's Witnesses on, on, on the Watchtower Society is the best that I've ever found. He gives the most detailed instruction. He goes into court cases that Charles Taze Russell, the founder, was involved in. Um, he, he, got, he has so much detail in here um, to expose the fraud that Russell was. And so that's probably the most in-depth resource I know to give you. I mean, there may be betters, but this is the best one I can recommend. If you're looking for just a more of an introduction, uh, Josh McDowell and Don Stewart's Handbook of Today's Religions, uh, he probably has, of all the religions he goes through and all the cults he goes through in this book, he spends the most time on Jehovah's Witnesses. So uh, if you're looking for something a little lighter reading, that's the one I would go to um, if you're looking to do more studying on your own. The cool part about the Jehovah's Witnesses is everything they've ever published is online. From all the way back to the very first Watchtower magazine in 1870-something, you can go look at their exact words, all right? So if you want to do more research and go to, did they really say that? Everything I cite today, you can go to their website and you can go look at it. 
Okay, you can look at every Awake magazine, every Watchtower publication, and you can see, yeah, Pastor Will's right. He pulled it exactly from this magazine or from this publication, and, and they did say that. Okay, so you can look at everything they've ever said and taught right on their own website. So, all right. Well, any study of the Watchtower Society is going to begin with that man right there, Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell was born in 1852, and we're always going to start with some history before we get into the Bible. But Charles Taze Russell was born in 1852. He was reared in a devout evangelical Presbyterian home, like most of these cult members, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And during his teenage years, Russell began to become plagued by doubts about two things, the authority of the Bible because of all the contradictions he saw in the various creeds, not the Bible, but the creeds that different denominations had and he felt they able to contradict each other. Remember, that was the Restoration Movement's problem with Christianity, is they saw all these creeds that disagreed with each other, and they said, the truth has been lost, we need to go rediscover it, okay? So he came into this same problem. He also had super high doubts about Christianity because of its teaching on hell. He could not believe that God would be merciful and create eternal punishment. So he left Christianity to search for truth in Far Eastern religions and philosophy. But those didn't satisfy his doubts either. So in 1870, at the age of 18, he was invited to hear the famous Adventist preacher, Jonas Wendell. Remember, Adventism is a springboard of the Restoration Movement. Wendell preached that the Scriptures predicted the date Christ would return to set up his kingdom, and that that date was 1874. Again, that's another Restoration theology false theology is this idea that we can predict the date of Christ's return through various mathematical procedures looking at the book of Daniel. So, the Campbell Stone movement and the Adventists had already incorrectly predicted at least four dates for Christ's return over 30 years prior to this. But when Russell heard this guy speak, he became absolutely convinced. And so with newfound zeal, Russell and several associates began pouring their time into examining every point and detail of Christian doctrine, creeds, and common traditions. They didn't look at the Bible per se. They were looking at all the creeds and traditions of churches in order to determine if they were true. Russell concluded that there were significant errors in common Christian belief and that his group had gained a new and clearer understanding of what the Bible taught. That is restoration theology in a nutshell. The truth was lost. The church is misrepresenting it. We need to go back and find it. We're the group that found it, okay? Same deal. It's the same story. It's like record on repeat, broken record just over and over again, even though it's a different cult group. So, as he's made these discoveries in the spring of 1876, Russell came upon a magazine published by another Adventist preacher named Nelson Barber. He was immediately interested because Barber's words echoed his own discoveries, So they met in New York to discuss views and compare notes. Both of them concluded that Jesus was actually coming back in 1878. When Barber pointed out that many Adventists, because they still remembered the disappointment in 1844, you have to realize what the Adventists did, and we didn't get into this too much, what the Adventists would do is when they predicted a date, they would all put on white robes and they would go on a kill on that day waiting for Jesus to come back. They sold everything they had, went on a hill waiting for Jesus to come back. Can you imagine the disappointment when that didn't happen? And then four years later when it didn't happen again. And then seven years later when it didn't happen again. And then in 1874 when it didn't happen again. So when Barber pointed out to Russell that 
So many of those who remembered these disappointments were beginning to lose their faith. The two men agreed they needed to do something and do it quickly. And so Russell, at the age of 24, sold his five clothing stores to the tune of $300,000. That's the equivalent of about $5.5 million in our day. And he did it so he could devote his time to spreading the truth, because it's 1876 and Jesus is coming back in 1878. He devoted all of his time to spreading the truth for the last two years before Jesus would come back, because people needed to hear that. So together, these two individuals published three books that explained how Jesus would return to earth as an invisible spirit, and that the purpose was not to destroy the world, to bring judgment, but to bless it. Well, when neither of those things happened in 1878, Russell and Barber, they disagreed upon the reason why they were incorrect. Russell doubled down. He believed Jesus did return in 1878. We just didn't see it. But Barber began to question if the idea of an invisible return of Christ was actually biblical. This led to a split, and so Russell removed his financial support. And he used his remaining finances to start his own publication called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. The first issue was published in 1879. It was changed to the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in 1884. That's still technically the official name that the Jehovah's Witnesses are known by. Russell was its appointed president, and its stated purpose was that Christian creeds and traditions were false, and they had corrupted the Christian faith for hundreds of years. That's the same exact purpose that Alexander Campbell had used for his publication that we studied a few weeks ago. Now, what happened to the Watchtower Society? Well, during these early years of his publications, Russell's Bible study grew to over 200 local members who annually elected him as the pastor. Between 1886 and 1904, Russell published a seven-volume set of textbooks, there we go, known as, they were textbooks on the entire Bible that he claimed were free of creeds and free of traditions. These became the famous studies in the Scripture, which Russell said this following quote about that I've read in an earlier session. He said, furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself… But we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies aside, the books I just showed you, if they lay that aside, even after he has used them, even after he has become familiar with them, even after he has read them for 10 years, if he then lays them, his writings, aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood the Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the Scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible, as such, he would still be in the light at the end of two years. So if you read all of his writings, you'd be fine. But if you just go to the Bible alone, you'll be in darkness. That was what he said about his own writings. Well, Russell was an incredible speaker and by 1903, his writings were being published in newspapers all across America. It was estimated that his readership was around 15 million at the turn of the century, 1900s. He originally taught that the church was the faithful and discreet servant that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. He says, who is that wise and faithful servant whom his Lord will command in his day? He taught, well, that's the church. But it was during this time of great popularity that Russell began to claim that he was the faithful and discreet servant. That Jesus, when he taught that message in Matthew 24, was actually talking about him, Charles Taze Russell. 
that he was predicting, Jesus was predicting, that Russell would come in the future to feed his flock. That is vehemently denied today by Jehovah's Witnesses, but this comes from the Watchtower publication, December 1st, 1919 edition, three years after Russell died, page 357. It says, thousands of the readers of Pastor Russell's writings believe that he filled the office of that faithful and wise servant, and that his great work was giving to the household of faith meat in due season. His modesty and humility precluded him from openly claiming this title, but he admitted as much in private conversation. Not my words, their words. Just got to go back a few years. The Watchtower denies this now, claiming that the entire organization is the faithful and discreet slave. In other words, that the overseers in their organization, this is from 1969, they serve as though being guided in their activities by the right hand of Christ. So the Watchtower leaders, not the church as a whole, but their leadership is the wise and faithful servant that God uses to guide the activities of His church. You can only know what God wants to do through His church through listening to what they have to say. That's from the Watchtower edition, 1969, January 15th, page 50 and 51. Well, because of this massive popularity, Russell began taking ministerial tours around the world. He died unexpectedly in 1916 on a train ride home on his final tour. However, the society moved on. After Russell's death, there was a power struggle amongst the society's board of directors over who would become the new president of the Watchtower to succeed Russell. Joseph Judge Rutherford, uh, the society's legal counselor, that's why they called him Judge, he ousted four of the other seven board members by their testimony in court was that he literally took all of their belongings to their own property where they all lived in Brooklyn, and he took all their stuff and just threw it outside. That was what they testified when they brought their suits. He replaced them with four other people who were loyal to him and was voted president. Twelve legal suits were filed against him by other board members, which ended up dividing the movement. In fact, one-seventh of the movement of the society left the Watchtower later that year. They formed three other societies that actually still exist today. You just don't hear about them because they're not going out door to door because that was not a thing Russell taught. That was a thing Rutherford taught. What Russell started, Rutherford codified. In 1931, he changed the name of the society to Jehovah's Witnesses. He also coined the name Kingdom Hall for Houses of Worship in 1935. He is the one who is responsible for many of the Jehovah's Witnesses practices you might be more familiar with. For example, they don't celebrate Christmas, they don't celebrate birthdays, they don't salute flags, they don't sing the national anthem. All members are required to distribute literature and to preach door to door. He's the one who established all of those things. And so his ideas, which stemmed from Russell, though, were codified and, and really kind of became the Jehovah's Witness movement. While Rutherford later turned against Russell in 1930, on February 15th, 1918, two years after Russell died, he instituted something called the safe rule of interpretation. In other words, whenever there was a problem of interpreting the Bible, the right answer was Russell's interpretation. After 1930, he changed that to say that the right answer was always the interpretation that was given by the leaders of the organization. We already talked about how that's a characteristic of all cults. They control truth. Rutherford died in 1942, and he was succeeded by Nathan H. Knorr. During his presidency, the society increased from 115,000 to over 2 million members. 
1961, under his leadership, the Watchtower published its own English translation of the Bible entitled The New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. This is the Bible used, the only Bible used by Jehovah's Witnesses today. Okay? So that's Jehovah's Witness history in a nutshell. So what do they teach? What are their claims? And then what does the Bible teach in regards to their claims? Well, let's start off with the Watchtower God. What does the Jehovah's Witness Church claim about God? Well, Charles Russell vehemently rejected the Trinity. Again, another restoration movement idea. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that God is not triune. They claim His only name is Jehovah and that He only answers your prayers if you use the name Jehovah. If you use any other name, He does not respond to you. Jesus is not Almighty God. He is instead a glorified spirit creature. He is a mighty but lesser God, also known as Michael the archangel. You can see that in their translation of John chapter 1, verse 1. Why don't you turn to John 1, 1 in your Bible? I promise you, any translation you have, no matter what translation you have, is going to be missing a very key word in their translation. Anyone pick it out? <laughs> Your Bible is probably going to have some variation of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a lot of difference in what that statement says right there. The Word was a God. In other words, He's not Almighty God, but He's a God. He's a lesser God. So Jesus is not Almighty God. If you go to PastorRussell.com, that still exists today. It's not the flashiest looking website, but it's got all of his ideas and all of his writings. They quote him here where he explains that Jesus has a higher nature than what he had before he became a human because of his faithfulness. So not only is Jesus not almighty God, but he's like a progressive kind of deity. He was Michael the archangel before he became a man, but then he kind of becomes more because of his faithfulness over time. Now, the Holy Spirit, He's just not a God at all to them. He isn't even a person to them. The Holy Spirit's just a force, okay? So that's what Jehovah's Witnesses claim about their God. So what does the Bible teach? Well, we looked at these verses last week, but let's look at them again. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. The Bible is very clear about God. Isaiah 43, 10. Isaiah 43, 10 says... You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. In other words, the Messiah and all of Israel are witnesses to what the Lord's about to say. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Jesus is either a man or he's God. He, he can't be a lesser God, all right? He's either just a person or he's God. Now, we teach, of course, that Jesus, we'll get to this later, he is God and man. I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but he's both. He's 100% both. I know that tweaks your math brain, but it's what the Bible teaches. A lot of people, when they, we, we, well, we'll get to the Trinity in a second. So anyway, God is one. There's only one God, one God. He says, there is no God before me, neither shall there be after me, Period. Paul echoes his statement in 1 Corinthians 8.4 when he's discussing idols to the Corinthians over the issue of eating food offered to idols, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 8.4, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, those aren't real gods, and that there is none other God but one. 
I mean, this was the consistent testimony of Scripture. The great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's one God. However, that phrase, one Lord, also teaches us that God is a compound unity. The word one there is echad in the Hebrew. And if I were to tell you, if I were to give you a bundle of sticks, I wouldn't tell you, hey, here's a bund- bundles of sticks. It's one bundle, but there's lots of sticks inside the bundle. That's what the word echad means. The word Elohim in the Bible, the name, the generic name used for God, it's a plural. It's, actually, it's not even a plural. There's three words for God. You have El, which is singular, Eloah, which is plural, and then you have Elohim, which is more than two. So I'm not saying that alone proves as a trinity. My point, though, is, is that when you add Elohim to this idea that we have the use of echad, when you read in Proverbs where it says, you know, who knows the Lord's name and who knows his son's name, we understand that God is a triune being. He is a compound unity. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now, in addition to this, the Bible also teaches that God has always been God. In the beginning was the Word. The word beginning there, it means go to the horizon, go to the vanishing point, and then as far as you can go, keep going. It says, NRK, in the beginning, beyond the vanishing point, into as far an eternity as you can go back and then keep going. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Bible teaches that God has always been God. Jesus didn't progressively grow or become greater. And as it concerns the Holy Spirit, I would ask the question, how do you grieve a force? How do you lie to a force? Last I checked, the wind didn't show up at my door and go, you know, you tricked me the other day. And I know I'm being silly, but but that's the idea. A force, you can't lie to a force. You can't grieve a force. You can't blaspheme a force. You can only do that to a person. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a person and that He is God. Look at Acts 5 with me. I've actually personally found it easier to prove that the Holy Spirit's God than Jesus is God, although the Bible's full of proofs for both. If you ever want to have a fun study, look at passages in the Scripture where it says, and God the Father says this, and then find passages that elsewhere in the Bible where it says the Spirit says the same exact thing, where it's attributed, one is attributed to God the Father, and the other one's attributed to the Holy Spirit. The force can't speak, doesn't have intellect, doesn't have a will, doesn't have emotions. The Holy Spirit has all those things, and we see it on display here in Acts chapter 5. Verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also being private to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? So they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while it remained, was it not in your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but who? Unto God, the Holy Spirit. Not the Spirit of God or and some definition that He's just a force or an emanation of God, but the person who is also God, the person who's the Holy Spirit, who is also God. So, The Bible teaches there's only one God. He is a triune God. He has always been God. So, 
That is very different than what the watchtower claims about their God. What does the watchtower claim about their Savior? Well, let's look and see what they say about their Savior. They claim that Jesus is a created being, and they use Colossians 1, 15 through 17 to prove that. I will quote their New World Translation. I've got it up there for you. But if you turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me, and let's see how it's different from all of your Bibles. I guarantee you, no matter what you've got, unless you've got a New World Translation, which you should not have, unless it's for research purposes, Every once in a while, someone will come into my office, and I keep it on a low shelf so I don't freak anybody out. But I've got, like, I've got a Koran, I've got a Book of Mormon, I've got a New World Translation, I've got all sorts of weird stuff down there, and, and I keep it down there. But every once in a while, somebody will come in and go, why are those books down there? And I'm like, research, research. This is where this teaching comes from. I could use these things as research. Trust me, I'm never reading them for my own benefit. The Bible, it's all we need Colossians 1, and this is 16 and 17 in the New World Translation. There says, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether there are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. Let me ask you a question. Do you have four others in your text? I promise you, you don't have one. There's a reason for that. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and they have, and the Word was a God. Let me give you a, a little trick. You can, anytime someone tries to tell this to you, you can go, no, I know it's not true. There's no word for a in the Greek language. It doesn't exist. There's no what we call the indefinite article. The definite article is the. That does exist in the Greek language. There's no way to write the indefinite article, a or an. You can't write it. It's not in there. So you'll never see it. Now, there is something called, and I know you don't want to hear this, but there's something called an anarthrous noun. And what it means is, is that we put an A there because it makes the sentence work. You know, it doesn't make any sense without it. But John 1.1 makes perfect sense without putting an A in there. The only reason to change it to an A is because you don't like what it says. There's no reason to put an A there. In the same way, there is no other. There is a Greek word for other, and it's not there in the original text. Nowhere. This is a literal, full-on addition because what the Bible says doesn't mix with their theology. So, they teach that Jesus was a created being. They also teach that Jesus was Michael the archangel in his pre-human state. Michael was transformed into a man Jesus is Michael the archangel in his prehuman state, and he had a brother named Lucifer who rebelled against God while Jesus remained obedient. Again, I would say, does that sound familiar? Because that's what we studied last week in Mormonism. Mormons teach something not the same exactly, but very similar, and that is because they both came from the same stem of the restoration movement. So, they believe that during Jesus' earthly existence, Michael was transformed into a man named Jesus. When Jesus the man died, Jesus the soul died. And when he was resurrected, he returned to his former angelic state as an invisible spirit, and he no longer has a body. Now, I think that's curious when you read in Revelation, it says that John beheld a lamb looking like it had been slain. I'm really curious how a, a spirit that has no body can look like it's been killed. Jesus, when he appeared to them, he had wounds in his 
wrists, right? And his feet and his side. So much so they could reach into it and touch it and feel it. But he's apparently just an invisible spirit, no longer has a body. The Watchtower explains this view in their book, Let God Be Glorified, 1961 it was written, page 266. Jesus was raised to life as an invisible spirit. He did not take up again the body which he had been killed in with the body in which he had been killed as a human sacrifice to God. In their 1946 book entitled Let God Be True, they state, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus, was raised from the grave, not a human creature, but a spirit. Therefore, Jesus in Jehovah's Witness ideology is no longer a man. He's not a man anymore. His human soul ceased to exist when he died because as they teach in their book published in 1978, Jehovah's Witnesses in the 20th century, they say the human soul ceases to exist at death. We'll get into that more later. But for now, Jesus is no longer a man. He is only an angel. He is not Almighty God, but He's a lesser God. He has not always been. He's a created being. Got it? All right. Well, what does the Bible teach? Well, let's go back to Colossians chapter 1. And we need to look at verse 15 because that's important. Colossians 1 verse 15. It says about Jesus that, well, let's go back up in verse 14, where it says, in whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. They believe that that means he was created. Firstborn, he's created. No. This is something that is where we have to build a bridge. We don't use firstborn in the way that Jewish people use the word firstborn. Firstborn back then did not refer to the idea of your first in order. I'll give you an example of this. I just read it in my devotion the other day. It might take me a second to find it. But Second Chronicles, no, First Chronicles. First Chronicles, because I'm not in Second Chronicles yet. Let's see if I can find it real quick. It just popped in my head. I was like, oh, this is a cool thing to share. But there's like 9,000 names over five chapters, so it might take me a second. Here we go. First Chronicles 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright or the birth order. Do you see that? In Jewish ideology, the firstborn was not simply the person who was the firstborn. It was the one who received the double blessing. It referred to the one who had the preeminence. Now, that is clearly shown by the context of verses 16 and 17, when it shows Christ has preeminence, because it says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's speaking of preeminence. There is no word other in the original language. In fact, when we say all things here, the word all precludes other. The word all means every, any, and all kinds of. There's no exceptions. If Jesus created everything with no exceptions, then he can't be created. Now, I'm petty, so forgive me, but the Watchtower 
did make a little boo-boo when they were fixing Colossians chapter 1 because they never fixed verse 18. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, and they forgot to add another there, all things he might have the preeminence. How can Jesus be first in all things if he's not almighty God? They forgot to add another other. Context is so important. Colossians 1.15 doesn't say Jesus was created. It says he's the preeminent one. He's almighty God. In fact, it mentions in these same verses, verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus is fully God even when he became fully man. Look at Revelation 3.14 with me. The Bible does not teach that Jesus is a created being. Revelation 3.14, when Jesus is introducing himself to the church at Laodicea in his message to them, he says, and unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will use this verse all the time to say Jesus is the first creation of God. Again, it betrays an ignorance. The word beginning here, it means origin or first cause. In fact, some of you may have a translation that that actually does a better job of that. Jesus is the origin or the first cause of God's creation. He's not a creator of the beginning of God's creation. He's the one who created everything. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the creator. Rather than to be a statement of showing he's a created being, it's a statement that he's declaring his deity, like so many of the other statements that he gives to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The Bible also teaches is that Jesus is almighty God from all eternity. He is not a God or a lesser God or just a mighty God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then I love verse 2. It's almost like John goes, somebody's going to mess this up. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus has always been God. Never was not God, and never ceased to be God. The Bible teaches that Jesus created all things and therefore cannot be a created being. John 1, 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You only write it that way because you think, somebody's going to mess this up. And very importantly, the Bible teaches that Jesus is still a man. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, this is after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, many years. Paul's probably writing this in the 50 AD somewhere, 54 AD is the idea, 52 to 54 AD. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul declares, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and who is it? It's the man, Christ Jesus. He is still a man. He's not an angel or an invisible spirit. He has an actual body. So, The Bible teaches something very different about the Savior than the Watchtower does. It teaches something very different about God than the Watchtower does. What does the Watchtower claim about salvation? And this is the one that's going to take me some time. So, what do Jehovah's Witnesses claim 
Jesus did for us. Well, Russell taught a popular view in his day. It's called the Christ's ransom view of the atonement. What is the atonement? The atonement is the idea is that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. That's what we believe about the atonement, that he, throw a word out to you, expiated. He satisfied God's wrath for our sin when he died for us on the cross, okay? He was our sacrificial lamb, our Passover lamb that paid the price for all of our sins. That's what we believe. Russell taught the Christ's ransom view of the atonement. What is that? Well, that is the doctrine that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil when they fell. So, God had to pay a ransom to the devil to free us from the devil's clutches. How did God do that? God did that by tricking the devil into accepting Christ's death as the ransom. He told the devil, he said, I'll tell you what, you give me humanity, you can have my son. I can have your son? Yeah. Do whatever you want with him. I can kill him? Go ahead, kill him. All right. And so Lucifer killed Jesus, but God tricked him because the devil didn't realize that Christ couldn't be held by death. So once the devil accepted Christ's ransom, the deal was done, but Jesus rose from the dead and he was scot-free, free from the devil as well. This view is still held by Jehovah's Witnesses today. Now, that means that Jesus' death on the cross only paid for Adam's sin. Don't ever let a Jehovah's Witness tell you, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If they tell you that, say, well, I believe that too, so that means I'm good. I'm good with the Lord. I have repented of my sins, put my trust in Christ, I belong to Him. So if you believe that Christ is the only way you get to heaven, remember we talk about assurance of salvation and that you can know to be absolutely sure that's how you share your faith, not by reading the story of what Russell read, but you tell him and say, then you know you're going to heaven, right? Just like I know I'm going to heaven. That's when they'll back up and go, well, no, 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 not, that's not what I believe about salvation. So what do they believe? Well, they don't believe that what Jesus did on the cross pays for your sin. They believe it only paid for Adam's sin. So salvation, your salvation must be earned by having more than just faith in Christ's death. So the view of the atonement is different. Secondly, their view of salvation is completely different. Charles Russell was famously known for being the man who, quote, turned the hose on hell and put out its fire. Remember I told you that he had a big problem with hell. Well, Russell, through his study in the Scriptures, he determined that the doctrine of eternal punishment was not biblical. He denied it. And he taught that when those who aren't faithful Jehovah's Witnesses, when they don't die as faithful Jehovah's Witnesses, you can die as Jehovah's Witness, but you're not faithful, you're no good. That means you end up like this. He taught that if you die and you're not a faithful Jehovah's Witness, that your soul is simply turned to the off position. You just are annihilated. You're annihilated from existence. Jehovah's Witnesses still hold to that view today. They believe in the annihilation of the soul if you don't die a faithful Jehovah's Witness. Charles Russell also taught there is no physical resurrection. Like I said earlier, even Jesus got a physical body. Now, if you, if... You are one of the first 144,000 believers from 33 AD to the present, and that you end, and you remain a faithful Jehovah's Witness, you get to go to heaven, and you get to rule and reign with Christ. They alone will get new spiritual eternal bodies at the resurrection. Anyone who becomes a follower after the 144,000 are saved from annihilation, you don't get to go to heaven. You don't even get to rule and reign with Jesus. 
you don't get a new spiritual body either. What happens is when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, God remembers your personality, and he doesn't turn your soul back on. He matches it to a new physical body. Now, just to throw out at you, that's not resurrection. That's reincarnation, by the way. That's not resurrection. That's reincarnation. If you have the same spirit or soul, but you get a different body entirely, that's reincarnation, okay? Remember I mentioned Russell did all that searching into the Eastern religions at the very beginning? Russell taught that these individuals will get a second chance. If you die a faithful Jehovah's Witness, but you're not one of the first 144,000 to die a faithful Jehovah's Witness, you will get a second chance in a brand new reincarnated body. They won't call it that, but that's what it is. And you get a thousand years to try to perfect yourselves for good this time. And if you succeed, then you can live in an eternal paradise on earth. You still don't get to go to heaven. You just get to live on a paradise on earth. Now, in 1930, the watchtower had claimed that the 144,000 had already been sealed. No one else can go to heaven. New witnesses would only be able to go to the paradise on earth. In 1935, apparently a bunch of people backslid because they claimed that, well, now it's only 52,465. By 2005, they said that there were only 8,000 524. We're really going backwards. In 2020, they stated the number was 21,182. We saw a little bit of a revival. Their most recent claim is that the number won't be sealed until just before Armageddon begins because you can see how much trouble you make when you start looking and examining these numbers. Well, what do you have to do to get a shot at paradise? Shot at reincarnation. That's from their website. I'm going to summarize it here, but that's from their website. These are not my words. You must do four things to be a faithful Jehovah's Witness and enter paradise. This comes from the Watchtower magazine. This is a copy right there. That's from the Watchtower magazine, February 15th, 1983, pages 12 and 13. You can see the little 13 on the side. This, this right there is an answer to the question that's on the previous page. What does God require of those who will reside forever upon his paradise earth? Let us examine four basic requirements. And they're all right there. Number one, you must use their Bible studies and attend their Bible studies. Number two, you must obey God's law by conforming your life to their moral requirements. Number three, you must be part of the Watchtower organization, which if you can read the print, is the equivalent of Noah's Ark in our time. And number four, you must be loyally telling others about God's organization. That's right there. Or I guess right there. I'm looking at this one. But right there at the bottom. The fourth requirement is connected with loyalty. God requires that prospective subjects of the kingdom support his government by loyally advocating, and I didn't put the emphatic italics there, they did, by loyally advocating his kingdom rule to others. You have to tell other people about your organization. Those are the four requirements for salvation. On the same page, I don't have a screenshot of it, but it says, this is the thrilling message that Jehovah's Witnesses bring to people when they call at their homes. There's nothing thrilling about having to do all that. There's no good news at all. In fact, it's bondage. 
Jehovah's Witnesses teach that one cannot be saved outside of the Watchtower organization. This is from the Watchtower Magazine, 1981, November 15th edition, page 17. And it's an answer to the question, for anyone to survive into God's new order, what must they do? And here it is. Any person who wants to survive into God's righteous new order urgently needs to come into a right relationship with Jehovah and his earthly organization now. Jesus plus our organization. In answer to the question, what do we anticipate as regards the scope and manner of our preaching activity before this world system comes to an end? They said, and while now the witness yet includes the invitation to come to Jehovah's organization for salvation, the time will no doubt come when the message takes a harder tone. You must join our organization or die. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that a person's attitude towards the Watchtower's leaders determines their doom or their eternal life on earth. That's why that number keeps going up and down. If you critique them, you're not a faithful Jehovah's Witness. Watchtower, December 15th, 1972, page 755. They said, Christ Jesus continues to exercise full headship of the true Christian congregation earthwide today. And just as he did back then, he uses earthly agencies to express this headship. The first century Christian congregation had a governing body composed of apostles and elders at Jerusalem. A similar body, their organization, a similar body of anointed Christians functions now. The governing body is the administrative part of a faithful and discreet slave or steward class concerning which Jesus promised his master will appoint him over all his belongings. In other words, they're in charge. So, recognition of that governing body and its place in God's theocratic arrangement of things is necessary for submission to the headship of God's Son. If you question them, you're not submitted to Jesus. And if you're not submitted to Jesus, you're not saved. So, for any of us, same document, For any of us, whether Christian elders or not, to be linked with Christ Jesus as our head requires our harmony with his congregation as a whole. If you're not in harmony with them, if you stir up trouble or ask too many questions, you're out. Well, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches that salvation doesn't happen because God tricks Satan. The Bible teaches that salvation happens because Jesus paid the price for all the sins of the world on the cross thereby satisfying God's righteous requirements. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, My little children, these things I write unto you that you do not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it means to satisfy God's righteous requirements. That is how we are saved. Not because what Jesus did somehow tricked the devil and ransomed us back from Adam's failure, from Adam selling us down the river. It's for all of our sins. Jesus paid the price, satisfied God's wrath. The Bible also teaches that salvation isn't earned by my own righteousness. Whether that's by a doing or attending Bible studies, I'm glad you're here tonight, but if you came tonight expecting to get saved just because you came, Sorry to disappoint you. 
That's not how salvation happens. It's not earned by my own righteousness, whether that's by doing or attending Bible studies, whether that's by conforming my life to the certain requirements of, of part, being part of an earthly organization, or by telling others about that organization. Salvation is a free gift from God received by faith alone. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 very clearly It says, now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you know what the purpose of all the commandments are? To show you you can't do it. The law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus to go, I'm not a good person. Look at all the things I fail. Look at all the things I I don't match up to. I need to be rescued. God, what's my only hope? And he says, well, here's the good news. That's the bad news why the good news is the good news. There's bad news. The good news is I loved you. I didn't want you to perish. And I sent my son to die for you. And my son spent his life for you on the cross. And not only that, but he rose from the dead for your justification. If you put your trust in me and leave that old righteousness behind, you follow me, I'll give you my gift of righteousness. And you can be right with me forever. That's what the Bible teaches about salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, this may be the last topic because I'm not going to be able to get into Mr. Russell's moral failings tonight. But what about Watchtower authority? What do they claim? Well, Russell said this, in his own studies of the Scriptures, that if you study that, you'll know the truth better than if you study the Bible by yourself. He said, be it known that no other system of theology even claims or has ever attempted to harmonize in itself every statement of the Bible. Yet, nothing short of this can we claim. In other words, they do claim that. We have attempted and succeeded in harmonizing every statement of the Bible. We know the truth in totality. Watchtower, July 15, 1960, page 439. The Watchtower is God's sole collective channel for the flow of biblical truth to men on earth. Relaying how their interpretations come from God, F.W. Franz, who is the fourth president of the Watchtower Society, stated this. They are passed, how they get their interpretations from God. They are passed to the Holy Spirit, who invisibly communicates with Jehovah's Witnesses and the publicity department. I didn't know Jesus had a publicity department, but they're it. Well, we know from the Scripture that the Holy Spirit can't fail because He's God. So let's examine what the Watchtower Society has predicted in order to see if the Holy Spirit truly communicated with them. Charles Russell claimed that Jesus returned invisibly in 1874 and that He has been ruling from heaven since that date. He claimed the Bible predicted that there would be a gradual deterioration of society culminating in the destruction of all world governments in October 1914. It is now June 2022. That did not happen. Judge Rutherford later claimed Russell was wrong. He got the dates wrong. He claimed that Jesus actually returned invisibly in 1914 and then would later return to earth in 1925. When that didn't happen, they changed the date to 1940. When that didn't happen, later presidents predicted Jesus would return to earth in 1975, and the very last prediction was 1999. Since the failure of 1999, the Watchtower Society now claims they will no longer predict dates for Christ's return. That's admirable, except for another claim you've already made. 
That's not how claiming to be God's sole collective channel for the flow of biblical truth to men on earth works. You don't get to say, oh, we made a mistake. Because the Bible tells us what we do with someone who says they are a representative of truth from God to men, and they're wrong. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. And we'll go just a few minutes to late, late today. Deuteronomy 18, and we'll just look at verses 20 through 22 for now. But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now that's under Israel's government. We're not Israel. That part doesn't apply, but the rest still does. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do we recognize when it's not a prophet from God? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. In other words, this is not just somebody going, hey, I've got a weird idea. When someone claims to speak from God, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, means out of his own heart. You shall not, it says King James, be afraid of him. It means don't respect him. Don't listen to him. We don't need to listen to anything that Charles Russell or anyone in the Watchtower Society says because what they predicted did not happen. They are false prophets. And yet, that's not where it ends. Charles Russell got his dates because he believed in pyramidology. This was a common view in that day that taught that the great pyramid of Giza in Egypt was built by the Hebrews under God's direction. In other words, not by slave labor under Pharaoh. God told the Hebrews to build this, and that this pyramid's ascending and descending passages were, to quote Russell, the Bible in stone. That's from volume three, study 10 of his studies in the scriptures. You can look at it today. Get the book, waste your money, go get it and look at it. Verify what I'm saying is true. Russell taught in his studies in the Scriptures that his dates of 1874 for Christ's invisible return and 1914 for the beginning of Armageddon emerged from his study of this pyramid. Interestingly enough, I'm very proud of this. I had to do a lot of research for this. That's from his studies in the Scriptures. Do you see all the pyramids on there? I'm not making this up. This is what he taught. But here's what I'm really proud of. That is a photo taken just last year. If you can notice, the little picture is the same picture I showed you of Charles Russell. That's his tombstone. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society erected a seven-foot-tall pyramid next to his tombstone in 1921. That's a photo from last year. The reason there's a photo there is because his tomb and the pyramid were vandalized in September of 2021 and were removed. It's not there anymore. So it got some highlights, got some news. But they put a pyramid right next to his tomb. The Bible teaches us not to mix pagan means of predicting the future with looking to the Lord. It, it, we read it in Deuteronomy 18 there as well. The pyramid stood as monuments to the tombs of the pharaohs, and it exhibited the Egyptians' glorification of life after death. There is no life after death that's to be glorified outside of Christ. 
We don't look to the Egyptians for truth. We don't need a Bible in stone because we have the Bible. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes a son or daughter to pass through the fire. In other words, that they sacrifice their kids to idols. Literally, kill them. You don't do that. Or that uses divination. Or an observer of times. Or an enchanter or a witch. Or a charmer. Or a consulter with familiar spirits. Or a wizard or a necromancer. For those that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you. You shall be perfect with the Lord your God. For these nations which you shall possess, they hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. That phrase, observer of times, it means they studied, they studied objects to predict the future. We don't do that. We're Christians. We study the Bible, and we heed the Bible when it says, no man knows the day or the hour. Let's all stand. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 commands us to look at the content of what someone says and the content of how they live. I encourage you, if you want to do your own study, to further inoculate yourself about Charles Russell. He, had, he was an abusive husband, and he had a bad reputation in the world. 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us the requirements for a pastor. You need to be the husband of one wife. You can't have a bad reputation in the world. You can't have legal action against you because you didn't pay alimony to your wife when she left you because you abused her. When we examine Russell Rutherford, who also was an abusive leader, they do not meet the requirements of an elder. We do not need to listen to what they say. Their life and what they say does not match Jesus, the Messiah, who came in the flesh. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which gives us teaching so we can know who you are, who your son is, who the Holy Spirit is. We are so thankful that we know what salvation is and know where our authority is. It's in your word. So Lord, through what we learned tonight, let this be this spiritual preventative maintenance that we don't forget it so that even when we can't answer questions that maybe someone from the watchtower comes to our door Lord, even if we can't answer the questions, that we can stick to those things, you know, stick to the Bible, using it always, sharing the assurance of our salvation with someone, that we can minister to them, but also not be open to deception ourselves. We love you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.